Uh, We have been traversing through the book of Judges for quite a while now. We've made it up through uh, the body proper, and uh, uh, not this week, but in coming weeks, we're going to make our way through, I keep wanting to call it an anthology, that's not what it is, appendix. (laughs) The last four chapters uh, serve as an appendix, and so I'm excited to pick up that pursuit. Uh, But in view of Memorial Day, I decided to give us a a chance to come up for air out of the book of Judges and uh, to come into one of the Gospels. And so uh, you can turn in your Bibles with me to the end of John uh, in the 21st chapter. It's John chapter 21, and uh, we're going to take a look at verses 15 through 23 this morning. Uh, As you do know, as I've mentioned earlier, it is Memorial Day weekend this weekend, and Uh, Memorial Day always for me has been a time of remembering and and looking back and reflecting, uh, obviously on those that have given their lives in the service of our country, but uh, also on my own life or in my own life. And, uh, you know, every year it never fails whether I'm somewhere swimming or doing a picnic or maybe just relaxing at home on Memorial Day when I have had it off. There's always that moment where I look at my life over the past year or so and kind of uh, just examine what's gone on. And uh, what I found funny this year, even though it's not quite Memorial Day yet, is uh, I found myself, as uh, I prepared to preach this week, thinking about uh, where I was around this time a year ago. And uh, it it struck me that uh, I was still in seminary. I hadn't quite graduated yet. And Chelsea was still pregnant. And we had kind of come up here to to preach a, a time or two. And there were still a lot of things that were really, really uncertain in our lives. And I just remember being filled with worry and and fear. I was just super concerned about what comes next in my life. What comes next in the future? Like, did all all this time in school, is it going to pay off? What do you want from me, God? And I felt this pressure and this worry that was always on my mind. No matter where I went or what I did, I was struggling with this worry and this this fear. It's an exciting time. But it was a worrisome time. And uh, the funny thing is, is looking back on it, I go, what was I so worried about? You know, have you you ever had that experience where uh, in the moment, uh, whatever it is that's weighing on you. And I imagine many of you have come here this morning with situations that are pressing in to your heart, things that are weighing on you and kind of pulling you down. And uh, they have your concern. You're worried about them, things you're fearful of that a year from now, I'm going to submit to you, might not even matter. I mean, you've probably had the experience before where things mattered to you so much in the moment, and then you looked back and you went, hey, that wasn't that big of a deal. What was I worried about? What is your biggest fear this morning? What are you worried about? Think in our text this morning, uh, we're going to see Jesus set Peter free from his fear and from his worry with two simple words follow me. I have to say, I, uh, I've read this text uh, many times in the past, and uh, this past year I heard uh, Dr. Moore preach it from a, a different perspective, and it really made it come alive to me, and so I'm indebted to him this morning, and my hope is, is that I can help you to love this text as much as he helped me to love it. The thing I want you to think about this morning, uh, the, to walk away with, is knowing that if you follow Jesus, then you're united to him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. 
And therefore, the worst case scenario about your life is true. And the best case scenario is true. Consequently, you can follow Jesus free from fear and worry. And to to put that a little bit more simply, Jesus frees us to live fearlessly is the point I'm going to try to drive home today. And uh, we're going to work through the text in two parts. We're going to take a look at Peter's past and Peter's future. We're going to do so from his present, right? It's at present for him in the text. And so we're going to look at his past and his future. I want you to consider this morning that Jesus' words to Peter are not only to Peter, but as the representative of the disciples as a whole, its words are to them as well. And they're also to you and to me, because we are caught up in this great work of building the kingdom of God, just as they were. And so the Lord speaks a a fresh word to us this morning. Before we uh, get into it a little bit, let's read the text Pray, and then we have started. Starting with verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one that had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, What about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet that's not what Jesus said. But that if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the cross, for the opportunity to gather together here as your people. We thank you that you've united us to one another through our union with Christ. And Lord, now as we turn to your word uh, and likely familiar verses, I, I pray that you speak to us in a fresh way from them. That we would taste your word and digest it, not only now, but throughout the week, so that it might uh, come out in all kinds of ways. That we might think on it, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight. God, change us by your word this morning. These words of life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Before we get into the the text, let's talk about the context a little bit here. Uh, What's happened at the beginning of John 21 is uh, Jesus is going to show up on the shore uh, and begin hanging out with the disciples. He's already gone to the cross. He's already died and he's already resurrected. And he's kind of on a resurrection tour. And he's been around just seeing people. He saw the disciples a few times already. He showed up and revealed himself to Thomas, had him put his hands in his wounds to say, yeah, it's really me. I'm not a ghost. I'm a person. I rose from the dead physically. And so uh, at the beginning of this chapter, the, John just kind of introduces and says, Jesus is standing on the shore and the disciples don't know that he's there. And uh, Peter says, hey, guys, I'm going fishing. And they say, all right, let's go. Let's go do some fishing. That sounds like a good time. And they get in their their boat and they, they fire up the engine and they go on out into the lake. Uh, and so they, they get their nets and they're 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 fishing And early in the morning, I guess, is when fish bite. I don't know. I'm not much of a fisherman. They don't catch anything. It's been a while and uh, the sun is starting to come up a little bit and they see this, this shadowy figure. They can't quite tell who it is. And John shows up and he says, you know what, that, I think that's the Lord. But he only says that after Jesus tells them to throw the nets on the other side, right? They throw the nets on the other side. They, catch a whole, they start to catch a whole bunch of fish and then it dawns on John. This has happened somewhere before. He remembers the time that Jesus had told them to do that. So he says, it is the Lord. And Peter, being the one that's, that's bold and um, uh, always willing to jump right in, does just that. He, he jumps off of the boat because he can't wait for it to get to the shore. And he swims in to Jesus. And he finds Jesus. Uh, he's sitting on the beach. He's got a charcoal fire going. And he says, hey, Peter, will you go get some fish from the other guys? I'm, I'm going to cook some breakfast. Um, some might point out that he's cooking on charcoal because that's superior to gas in terms of grilling. Uh, I've never been a buyer on that argument, but this certainly adds some weight to it. I might have to have to reconsider my grilling practices here. Now, most mornings for breakfast, uh, Chelsea's good enough to to make it for me, and uh, she's an excellent cook, and and I love her for that. But I got to tell you, I'm pretty certain that she's not as good a cook as Jesus, right? Like, he's got a charcoal fire going. He's going to make some fish. Like, he's cooking breakfast. I mean, this, this seems just amazing to me. I don't know if it's amazing to you or not. Here he is, Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the universe. The one that Colossians 1 says holds the very fabric of the world together. Sitting on the beach, cooking breakfast for a bunch of fishermen. I'm also sure it was delicious. Like, I'm, I'm jealous. I want to have breakfast with Jesus. So they eat breakfast, and they're, they're sitting around, you know, just shooting the breeze, having a good time. The band's kind of back together again. And all of a sudden, Jesus looks at, at Peter, and he asks him the same question three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, yes, yes. And then he's grieved, and he says, Lord, you, you know that I love you. Why is he grieved? It's because Jesus is ripping the scab off of an old wound. And in the middle of this warm and fuzzy gathering of the disciples, he's pointing Peter back to his past. Not to the time that he walked on water. Not to the time where he dropped everything and followed Jesus. Or not even the time when he confessed him as Lord. But to the time that Peter three times denied even knowing him. John 18, verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are also not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. 
Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire. Notice that charcoal fire. Jesus was just setting the stage to point him back here. Because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter was with them, standing and warming himself. And they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, or the relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. Jesus is pressing in here to that pain. I mean, do you remember what happened before Peter denied Jesus? Where they had that interaction and Simon confesses him and, and Jesus is kind of telling him he's going to, uh, go, he's going to die. And he says, you will all fall away because of me this very night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then Peter said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the disciples said the same. But Peter indeed denied Jesus. He indeed fell away, as did all the rest of the disciples, too. Don't don't miss that detail. Peter denies him with his words, but the rest deny him with their actions. Mark tells us that they all left him and fled. Jesus is bringing up these painful events, I think, to remind Peter and the rest of the disciples and to remind us of the elementary truths of the gospel, of some of this gospel simplicity. I mean, it's almost as if he's saying to Simon Peter, do you remember your very confession when you said you are the Christ, the son of the living God? And I said to you, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Don't you see, Peter, you didn't call yourself to me. And you will not keep yourself with me based on your good works or any merit that you have in yourself. I called you and I will keep you. Sin is no longer your identity. I am. See, by asking this same question to Peter three times, Jesus is letting Peter know and the disciples know that their sin, like our own sin, is forgiven, that they can be restored to right relationship with their Lord. D.A. Carson notes, as Peter had boasted of his reliability in the presence of his fellow disciples, so this restoration to public ministry is affected in a similarly public environment. As he had disowned Jesus three times, so Jesus requires that he confess three times. There's no trace of self-righteousness in Peter's responses, yet he has found he can only appeal to the fact that the Lord knows everything and therefore knows Peter's heart. Jesus knows more simply than Peter's heart here. He knows Peter entirely. He knows that Peter is flawed, yet he is willing to absorb the cost of Peter's sin and grant him forgiveness. So forgiveness is very costly. It always costs something. 
Uh, let's think about it just in economic terms. Recently, uh, Chelsea and Elliot and I went to, to China on a, a short trip. And when we got back, I went to go to my mailbox and discovered that it had been just destroyed, right? It, it's, I have a feeling it was one of you and there hasn't quite been that confession yet. I'm not going to say any names. But somebody had to pay the cost to make it right, to make the, the mailbox there again. I couldn't just go, hey, listen, Henry, I forgive you for running into my mailbox and it just be fine. Somebody had to, had to pay to buy the new stuff and then somebody had to take their time and their energy, thanks Herschel for that, uh, to, to put the, the mailbox back up, to restore it. Because forgiveness costs something. Time, energy. We couldn't just sweep it under the rug. It had to be dealt with. I mean, same thing if you would come to my house and break a lamp, right? You would probably have to buy me a new one, or I would have to say, don't worry about it. I didn't like the lamp anyway. Chelsea picked it out. It wasn't my favorite. Uh, and so, like, I can buy a new one, or I can just have no light in that room. But somebody has to absorb the cost. Forgiveness costs. And Jesus has paid that cost on the cross so that we could be forgiven and so that we could forgive others. And here he's demonstrating that to us as he forgives and restores Peter. You remember earlier on in the Gospels, Peter asked Jesus, Hey, how often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus tells him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. His point here isn't to say, look, keep a list of every time you forgive somebody. And once you get to 77, 78th time, that's it. Over. Forgiveness ends. No, he's saying you forgive each and every time over and over and over again. You all know the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us as we forgive our debtors. Maybe you've heard it. Forgive as we forgive. Do you really want that to be true when you pray it? How forgiving are you? Jesus is modeling forgiveness here. He forgives Peter. Who do you need to be like Jesus to? Who do you need to offer forgiveness to? What relationship do you have that's out of whack that you need to reconcile? I think often when somebody sins against us, there's always a, a few choices in the way that we respond. And uh, two of the more popular ones, I think, is just the overtly, like going after somebody verbally. Uh, in my day, I've heard it, hey, are you going to tell so-and-so off? Uh, you know, and you go and you just tell them like it is and just there's this vicious verbal outburst. Uh, another option, I think, is uh, the, the passive option where you just stuff that deep down. You smile and uh, in the back of your mind, you're thinking like, I hope you get hit by a bus. Right. It's this very uh, passive, aggressive kind of thing. And the problem with that is that it causes bitterness to grow. It makes us it makes us callous and hard, cold. It actually ends up enslaving us because unforgiveness is sin. Unforgiveness is sin. And when we allow unforgiveness to reside in our hearts, we make ourselves slaves to it. And the gospel has told us that sin shall not be our master because we're not under the law, but under grace. Unforgiveness is a sin. And friends, we must take a posture of the cross. We must die to our own selfish ambition, our own self-absorbed natures, and learn to forgive as Jesus forgave. 
and also to seek forgiveness from those that we've wronged. So I want you to think this morning, who do you need to forgive? And who do you need to ask forgiveness from? Jesus is restoring Peter and the rest of the disciples by offering them forgiveness. And he offers that same forgiveness to you this morning to restore you for your transgressions, for your sins against him. Jesus here also uses Peter's past to point him to his future. We're going to enter into part two of your outline if you're following along there. Uh, And we're going to start at verse 18, Peter's future. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. After what we thought of as kind of like a Kodak moment that Jesus interrupted the breakfast by asking Peter these three questions, we think, all right, now they're going to hug it out. It's going to be all good. But again, Jesus takes this Kodak and warm, fuzzy moment and he kind of turns it and makes it, it sounds a little bit dark here, right? He speaks to Peter, an old commission and a new one. He says, you're going to go where you don't want to go. The phrasing makes me ask this question. Where is it that Peter doesn't want to go? And I think we find the answer in that, that that just precedes it. He asked Peter these three, that three questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He had the charcoal fire going to point us back to those denials. And I think that we're pointed back to the denials again. What is it that Peter doesn't want to do? Where is it that he doesn't want to go? And I think we find the answer when we ask, why would he deny Jesus in the first place? Because he didn't want to follow him to the cross. He didn't want to go through the valley of the shadow of death. He didn't want his life to be shaped like the place of the skull. He didn't want to be arrested. He didn't want to be mocked. He didn't want to be spit upon. And as he saw Jesus begin that long walk to Calgary's hill, He was filled with fear and with worry. He didn't want the worst case scenario for his life to come true. So he denied even knowing him. I think Jesus' words to Peter here are both terrifying and liberating. It's terrifying because it makes Peter's worst fear a reality, right? I was trying not to end up uh, crucified on a cross, and now you're telling me that I'm going to be taken where I don't want to go. You know, there will be suffering in this life. Uh, I was reading this morning in my quiet time in uh, one of the Timothys, I can't remember. I think it's 3, 5 or thereabouts. Paul says that anybody that desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. There will be suffering. That's what Jesus' pronouncement to Peter here is. It's his pronouncement to you as well. If you follow Jesus, you can expect suffering in this life. Saying that the worst is true for you. Saying as Christians, as those that follow Jesus, your short-term life, it looks like the place of the skull. Saying, Peter, you're called not to wear a crown but to carry a cross. You're called to carry a cross, not wear a crown. 
And I fear in our culture, we have become very comfortable. We have very comfortable Christianity, and I think that often it lulls us to sleep. We have this weak, watered-down version of what Jesus was actually calling men and women to, and that was to die to themselves, to follow Him. We, we live this Christianity that seemingly, if somebody were an outsider observing, calls us to comfort and prosperity rather than sacrifice. I think that our churches in America are suffering from affluenza, right? Everybody's looking for their best life now and their comforts instead of how they can sacrifice, how they can help build the kingdom of God, how they can take the gospel forth. I heard a staggering stat the other day. Did you know that the average American lives on about $90 a day, while the vast majority of the rest of the world lives on about one? Here's what's scary about that. Is that we are some of the wealthiest people to ever walk the face of the planet. And often, instead of using our money to spread a passion for the supremacy of God and for the joy of all peoples, we add comforts to ourselves. As some of the richest people to ever walk this planet, Jesus' words should be heeded. Truly, I say to you, only with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Or how about this parable? The land of a rich man produced plentifully. He thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up for himself treasure. And is not rich towards God. Fool. We have been foolish. I fear that we are living as if it is peacetime when in fact it is wartime. Y'all ever seen the old uh, World War II poster? Uh, it's got a, a girl on it. She's kind of flexing in a pose like this. She has a red bandana on. And the words, we can do it, are strung across. Some of you probably remember it. It was a propaganda thing during World War II because what had happened was many of the men were going to fight the war. And so to be able to keep up with production of things, many women entered the workforce in a way that they were not accustomed to. See, everybody was working with the, the same mentality, right? Everybody was pitching in. Everybody was pulling in the same direction, working towards the same goal. And I think this is how our churches should look. We should all be pulling in the same direction, working towards that same goal to make Jesus known in all nations by all peoples. But instead, I think we ignore this cosmic conflict and we sit back. We don't concern ourselves with the great 
commission to make disciples of all nations, to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim Jesus. And we just live as if we're at peace. We are not at peace. We have forgotten the stakes. They are eternally high. It's Memorial Day weekend. And I want you to remember not only those that lost their lives serving our country, but those that have lost their lives for the cause of Christ. Say the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I don't think our churches are bleeding. I don't think we're resisting sin to the point of shedding blood like Hebrews says. I think we're shrinking back from the call. Instead of using our money and our time and our very lives to serve the weak and the poor and the marginalized, we serve ourselves. An open war is upon us whether we acknowledge it or not. Imagine for Peter who, he lived three decades longer after Jesus said this to him. Imagine there wasn't a day that he woke up and he didn't hear the sirens of war in his ear. I doubt there was a day that he didn't wake up and hit his knees and pray, God, if today's the day, make me strong enough. I doubt there was a day that he didn't press in to who Jesus is. I don't think that he forgot the stakes. And I pray that we would remember the stakes, that we would remember our own call and our own lives, which is the same as Peter's. To call to suffer and to die. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Have you been gathering things into these barns and tearing down your barns and putting more and more trinkets and more and more money and more and more wealth and saying to your soul, eat, drink, and be merry, while God is saying to you, fool. Following Jesus costs everything. But listen to me, it will also give you everything. You see, the worst case scenario is true for Peter. And that's terrifying. It's true for us, and that's terrifying. But it's also liberating. It's also freeing. You see, the worst case scenario is true for us and for Peter, not because we will suffer and die, but because we've followed Jesus. See, following Jesus means that our short-term lives will be shaped like the place of the skull. It also means that our next life is shaped like the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. In Jesus, the worst case scenario is already true for you and the best case scenario is already true for you because as Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You're united to Christ. You've been crucified with Christ. Friends, that's the worst case scenario. And if you know Jesus, it's true of you. So what are you afraid of? 
You've had the crown of thorns put upon your head when you are united to Christ. You've been spit upon. You've been mocked. You've been crucified with Christ. The worst is true. Just as you were crucified with Christ, you rose with Christ. So the best is also true of you. And this is freeing, is it not? means that we don't have to live up to our own expectations. We don't have to measure up to whatever the, the stakes are. We don't have to try and find identity or affirmation from the world and the people around us, but we can simply look to our Lord and our Savior, who we are united with, who we've been crucified with, who we've been raised with, and who sits at the right hand of the Father. Follow me, Jesus says to Peter. Carson has uh, suggested that Jesus' words, follow me here, have a dual purpose. That they serve to make that spiritual statement, follow me and trust in Christ, give your life to me. But also that Jesus is actually saying to Peter, hey man, you want to go for a walk on the beach? Peter's like, yeah. I think that's what happens here because that explains a little bit as as they're walking. uh, Peter kind of turns and he sees John like creeping on him a little bit. And he asks Jesus, well, what about him? What about that guy? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you to my death. What about John? I can relate to Peter here a little bit. And I, th- I think there's a subtext going on. I think that maybe John, uh, that Peter found him a little bit annoying. Like, I mean, you can see that in John, right? He keeps calling himself the disciple who Jesus loved. We get it. You were close. Points out, hey, uh, Peter and uh, the disciple who Jesus loved, they were running to the tomb. But the disciple who Jesus loved outran Peter. He got there first. I understand what Peter, what about this guy? Come on. I'm going to die. What's going to happen to him? I love what Jesus says to him. If it's my will that he remains until I come, what's that matter to you? You follow me. I love this on a a number of levels. First, because, like, Peter never finds out what happens to John. You know, he thinks, man, John's going to live forever. And I love that John just kind of parenthetically says, this is just what people thought. It was speculation because, listen, I had some bad things happen to me. I also had some really bad nightmares uh, and wrote about it, a book called Revelation. Um, like, you know, he, he says some things happen and I ultimately will, will die because he points out that's not exactly what Jesus said. But Jesus says to Peter, if it's my will, he remains until I come. What is that to you? It doesn't matter to you. You follow me. Peter's wanting to compare his life with John's, his call with John's. I think that we do the same. That we're prone to jealousy. We determine our worth based on how we stack up against other people or how successful the culture deems us. Thankfully in Jesus... We are not judged by that standard. In Christ, we're called to crucify comparison, to kill comparison. What is that to you? You follow me. We've all been uniquely gifted to follow Christ, to steward our gifts to one another in community as the church. We all have a unique call. We have the same call to follow Jesus, but in unique ways. Our obedience looks different based on the person. I love what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians seven seventeen. <clears throat> Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. That verse is just sweet to me. 
on hard days, I can go, I, God, what, what is it you want? Oh, for me to live as you've assigned me, you've determined the times and places that I would live. I just need to live as you've assigned me. I used to watch a, a bit of uh, WWE wrestling back in the day. And there was a character called The Rock. I don't know if you guys know who The Rock is. He's been in some movies. And he used to say, know your role and shut your mouth. I kind of, I think he had a little bit of a point. Like, that's a good idea. And like, know your role. Don't compare yourself with other people. Do your job. Just follow Christ. That's kind of what Jesus is saying to Peter here. I've told you what your role is. Don't worry about John. You follow me. I think we have many things to learn from Peter here. I think the primary one is that we're all sinners who have broken our relationship with God, just like he did in his denials. Try to live our way instead of his. Like Peter, we all need to be restored. That's the, that's the good news of the gospel, is that uh, I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. But I'm so loved that Jesus was glad to die for me. That we're more wicked and evil than we ever dared believe, but in Jesus we're more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. Forgiveness costs something, and he went to the cross for us. That sin demanded payment, and he absorbed the cost. He lived that perfect life. He died that perfect death. He died that we might die, and he lives that we might live. that we might be called saints, his people. The word saint isn't one that we use a a whole, whole lot. And uh, it's one that I actually really like. You see it in the New Testament. uh, It's in the Old Testament sometimes. And uh, the word just means like to be holy or one that's separated from the world or consecrated to the service of God or uh, one that by a profession in Christ uh, or has made a profession in Christ as a believer that's in covenant. So we are saints. If you follow Jesus, you are a saint. I want to close in part by quoting uh, some lyrics from a Christian rap artist named Lecrae. He says this, Jesus finished the work. He resurrected on high. That means he beat death and best belief so will I. See, some believe they can fly, but I believe I can die. Resurrect, leave the earth and live forever with God. He will march through the sky while the stars sing his praises. The planets dance around and the universe is amazed. And for me, I get to gaze upon his beauty for days. Man, if I could be anything, baby, I'd be a saint. He's right. There is nothing better that one can be than a saint. There's nothing better you or I can be than a follower of Jesus. There is no better case scenario for your life then that the worst case scenario be true of you now. Our short-term lives as Christians, as we follow Jesus, it's going to be shaped like the place of the skull. But our long-term future, those days that are to come, they're shaped like a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, and a new earth. Jesus has freed us to live fearlessly, to live joyously, Delighting in his supremacy. Christian, are you delighting in your sainthood this morning? Non-Christian, are you ready for the best to be true of you? The best and the worst.
I hope so. Would you pray with me in closing? Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, for your kindness to us, that you meet us right where we are. We know that we're not perfect and uh, that we have sinned and that we're broken, but you don't call us to clean ourselves up before we come to you. That you come and you take off our filthy robes and put on your righteous robes. You call us clean. You call us son as you adopt us into your family. Lord, we thank you that through repentance and faith and a commitment to community, we can discover what it is to live the Christian life and to live our lives in light of the gospel. That good news that you absorbed the cost of our sin, that we might follow you fearlessly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.